37 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And you will be sons, and, you, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father in heaven is merciful. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to talk to you about life. You know, life at times can be quite a contradiction, can't it? By the way, I'm perfectly on the fly right now because my illustration... Aha! Brilliant! Okay. I saw a couple things that befuddled me a little while ago. I saw these pictures in, in, the, the, um, in the news. We've got a man here swimming with an 11-foot crocodile who for some reason did not take his head off but rather allowed him to swim with it for two hours. Contradiction. How about this one? Isn't this precious? The impala and the cheetah loving one another in perfect harmony. Now normally the cheetah would eat that thing in one bite, but alas, for some reason, they're playing and frolicking in the bush. Here's another chance where they're snuggling and loving one another. Doesn't it make your heart feel so warm and happy to witness this moment? Here's a cheetah who is grooming the impala right at the jugular and yet oh so tastily and lovingly and yet the impala who clearly is a very dumb impala and doesn't have a clue walks away unscathed certainly a contradiction right there are many many contradictions out there right what about a silent alarm that's a contradiction how about it's a well-known secret well, if it is, how about this person was found missing? How about dry ice? Or a final draft? Or perfectly flawed? They're all contradictions. They're things that don't go together. You're an example of things that don't go together is enemies and love. It's a contradiction in the world, isn't it? I mean, think about it. We're not talking in abstraction, but in realities, right? That person that you can't stand. That person who can't stand you. It's the person you see when you walk into your office. They're there, your nemesis. It's your boss. It's your employee. It's your friend. It's the person, your frenemy. Isn't that an interesting word? It's the person down the street that you dread seeing, that your blood begins to boil when you see them. And yet Jesus brings up this contradiction to love your enemies. To show radical love. 
extraordinary love even. The question we have to ask is, Jesus, did you miss the mark on this one? How can we love in this sort of way? You go beyond, you ask too much. And yet what Jesus is saying is that love for our neighbor, love for our enemy, is a natural extension of God's love for us. That this shouldn't be a contradiction, but rather there should be a cohesiveness between God's love and ours. And so we have to ask the question, how? God, if you say this is true, you're going to have to show us how we are to do this. But I think he gives us instruction, Jesus says in this passage, he gives us three admonitions of how we can move to loving our enemy. Number one, he shows us that love sees. Love has vision more than simply sight. Number two, love does. It doesn't simply react. It responds. And finally, love costs. It's the most expensive thing in the world, isn't it? And so there is a cost to love. And so the question is, where are we going to get the resources to do so? See, extraordinary love can only come from extraordinary grace. And so let the love of your enemies show that your love is from God. Well, let's look at these points. Number one, love sees. You know, I don't like this passage very much. If I was to follow Thomas Jefferson, the founder of our esteemed university, I would take my scissors and I could cut this one out, right? So I could have a very comfortable and safe New Testament. See, to me, Jesus asks too much because he asks for my hatred. It's kind of silly why anyone would want to hold on to hatred, right? But there is something strange about having an enemy and holding on to them. There's a, a savoriness to it. There's an enjoyment of it. Sort of letting it sit and fester, enjoying it. It becomes a banquet of sorts. Why is that? Why do we rejoice in hating our enemy? You know, I think in our twisted logic, we see it this way. That our enemy has done something against us. And therefore, he owes us. Or she owes us. It's sort of like a credit, a withdrawal that has been taken out. That must be paid for the account to be made right. And so it's nice to be a creditor rather than a debtor, isn't it? In fact, for some reason, if we allow the bill to accrue, we generate interest. And lo and behold, the value of what they owe us continues to increase. But God even wants the right to my hatred. Now, who are these people, these enemies that Jesus is talking about? We see, actually, last week number tw in verse 22, that these are the ones who reject you. They don't accept you. They don't receive you. They reject you. Verse number 27, they hate you. There is a sense of anger and uh, bitterness and hatred. I'm speaking very, you can translate these things yourself because we've all felt them, if we're honest. They hate you. They curse you. It means they speak poorly of you. They speak poorly of you to your face. They speak poorly of you to other folks. A curse is a strong word, isn't it? It's like a placing, trying to place death upon someone. 
rather than blessing. They abuse you, maybe verbally, maybe physically, it may be socially. It's everything from internet bullying to intimidating at the workplace. They abuse you. And verse 30, if they have the opportunity, they may exploit you. They may come after your resources. They may look to take, to acquire, to subtract from what you have, to increase for what they have. Now Jesus isn't saying we somehow put on rose-colored glasses. That somehow we're naive as to their intentions. No, he says to see them for what they are. They are an enemy. Now we have to ask our, ourselves the question, why are they an enemy? Is the reason they're an enemy is because we have acted poorly toward them. Maybe we have caused this. This passage doesn't really deal with that, truth be told. Because there are plenty of other scriptures that talk about going and making it right. No, I think this passage deals with really more two issues. Number one, um, they rub, you rub them the wrong way. They just don't like you. For whatever reason, either something you did, someone you are, you rub them the wrong way and so they just don't like you, whether in deed or in simply being. And the other reason that Jesus is speaking to is that you're a Christian. There's something in what you do and who you are and how you live your life that offends them. You don't know if this has happened to you. And so, for some reason, anything that you do, no matter how good it is or how loving, seems to draw derision from them. It's like Jesus who goes and he heals somebody on the Sabbath and the, the Pharisees are furious and went out and discussed how they might kill Jesus. We must see them for what they are, our enemy. But we must also see them from God's viewpoint. Verse 35, it says that he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. See, God knows who people are. He knows how they are with him. For certainly if they have an account with us, they have one with God. Indeed, all of us do. And so how are they with God? They're ungrateful. They're evil. The scriptures say that although everyone knew God, they did not glorify him or give thanks to him, but rather they moved their affections to something else. God, how does he respond? The scriptures say that he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This word kind is interesting. It's always translated in the New Testament, goodness or kindness. In fact, many of us know that verse, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, or my yoke is kind or good, and my burden is light. It's the same word. And so that's illustration of lifting a weight off of them rather than putting a weight on top of them. He is kind to them. As the scriptures say, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Anybody wake up today and look at the sky and look at the trees and look at the beauty all around us? God brings blessings upon all people for he is good. Everyone in some way, shape or form can see the goodness and beauty of God if they only are to look. Nobody deserves life. It is a gift from God. And yet God's desire, and periodically, 
and constantly throughout life is giving a blessing and easing life. Why is God kind? Why is he kind to these people? He shouldn't be. The scriptures say in verse 36, For your father is merciful. Not your father has mercy. Not that he shows mercy, but rather he is merciful. It's part of his nature. Psalm 145.8 puts it this way, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. He has compassion on all he has made. Micah 17, who is God, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. As we look through God's eyes and see these people, we have to look through God's eyes and see ourselves. Does the scriptures not say in Ephesians, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live as you followed the ways of the world and Satan the ruler of the air. All of us lived among them at one time gratifying the uh, cravings of our sinful natures. We were by nature objects of wrath. See, we were exactly like these people. Knowing God's goodness and kindness and yet disdaining it. Throwing it in his face, so to speak. Leaving the one we loved in order to gratify ourselves with idols and things that do not speak or hear or give. We were by our nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, Christian, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. See, when we look at ourselves through God's eyes, we have to conclude that we are exactly the same to God as they are, our enemies are to us. You see, when we see them clearly, we understand that who your enemy is to you, you are and were to God a millionfold. I think one of the reasons that I don't like to look at my enemy is because when I see my enemy, I see myself. My enemy is my mirror. And what God says is to play a role reversal. I do no longer get to play the role of my enemy. I get to play the role of God. But Carlos, you don't, you don't know this person. Yeah, that's all fine and good on Sunday, but this person is treacherous. They undermine me constantly. They speak falsehood about me. They never give me a rest. They're always constantly plotting for my undoing. But God says, I don't want you to see them that way. Your hatred has blinded you from them. Because my enemy is my mirror. And my hatred for them has blinded God's grace for me. And when I hate, I lock myself out of God's grace and I bury the heart of God. I can only truly see my enemy when I look in his eyes and I see myself. Many of you are familiar with Corey Tenboom, the Christian from Holland, who with her uh, sister, Betsy, 
and their family were arrested for harboring Jewish uh, people. They were not Jews, they were believers. <clears throat> and so they were sent to Ravensbrück, a notorious Nazi death camp that killed nearly 100,000 women. We know of the faith of Corey, but it was Betsy who truly had the greater faith in Ravensbrück. It was Betsy that taught Corey how to love. Because Betsy constantly prayed. But as much as she prayed for her fellow captives, she prayed for her fellow captors. One day Betsy was cruelly whipped by a guard for not working hard enough, but she didn't give in to hatred. She prayed for the guards as much as she prayed for the prisoners. Corey found this very difficult, but somehow Betsy seemed to have risen above all the suffering and to be living very close to God. One time Betsy saw a uh, captor, a guard, cruelly beating another person and said to Corey, we must pray for him. Excuse me, we must pray for her as a woman, uh, it was a woman guard. And Betsy uh, and uh, Corey realized that what Betsy was saying was praying for the prisoner, uh, for the guard. That it was guard, that it was the hatred in this person's life that needed to be prayed for. Even while this person was cruelly whipping another. Betsy had a vision before she died of a concentration camp where there would be no barbed wire and all the buildings would be painted beautifully. And it would be a place where there are no gates and no doors. And it would be a place where she could bring in the Nazi soldiers and those who were complicit in the crime and teach them to love again and teach them the goodness of God. Others, they let their anger fester. It ate them up. It brought death instead of life. But even in Betsy's death, it brought life to her sister and to the world. Where do we find such sight? You know, they say that love is blind. I think it's the exact opposite. We hate because we cannot see. And so who is your enemy? Can you see them aright? Only by the grace of God. What is it that they have done? Who is it that they are? Do you have a right to hate? Maybe. But God is rich in mercy. And when I look at my enemy, I see myself. And so we must look to God, the loving God, the kind God, the one who I should be an enemy of, who did not carry out his punishment, but he saw me not for who I was, but what I was meant to be. We must see our enemy in the eyes of salvation, because it is only then when we will see them aright. Because when we love those we should hate, we show who God is. This brings me to my second point, love does. The scripture says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know, it's saying more than simply to receive their punishment. It's saying to respond. You know, it's easy to react to hatred, isn't it? It's more difficult to receive it without retaliating. To, but to respond with love proactively, that's an entire different story. 
See this passage here, Jesus is saying is I want you to do the exact opposite of what they do to you. And the key word is do. Do good to those who hate you. You ever think about how much of Jesus' ministry was simply doing good to other people? Remember on the Sabbath he was in the synagogue and there was a man with a withered hand? And he said, stand up, come here. And he looked around to the people and he says, what is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And he healed him. So we see that to do good is to bring life in the face of suffering. To move people from death to life, whether in a miraculous way or in a simple non-miraculous way. Acts 10.38 talks about God who anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Jesus' ministry was one of goodness, wasn't it? It was goodness of healing, goodness of feeding, goodness of looking and seeing the destitute when everybody else's eyes passed over them, goodness of caring for those disciples even when they betrayed him. It was a goodness that flowed out of his very nature. You know, this has been the characteristic of God all along. We think about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's Exodus 23.4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Jesus is saying to look out for their welfare even when they're not looking out for yours. As opportunity comes along to show love, do it. It's surprising the opportunities that do come along that we pass over because we don't consider that maybe they're from God and an opportunity to show love. Do good. He also says to bless those who curse you. You may know the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That is a big lie, isn't it? You know, it's the words perhaps more than anything that can hurt us. For a word spoken in cursing is more painful than a bone that is broken. And so this word bless in the Greek, eulogia. You meaning good, logia meaning word. To speak a good word. I don't know if anyone's ever been to a funeral where they give a eulogy. I've heard a fair amount myself. And some of the people we know whose funeral it's for are complete scoundrels. Horrible people even. Right? And the beauty of the eulogy is a chance for someone to get up and let them have it. To have the last word. To communicate to them, to the public, how terrible they were. No. You can find a good word to say about anybody. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. You may have to look really hard, but it's there to speak a blessing. The Old Testament, this word, eulogia, is barak, which literally means to bend the knee, to pay homage to somebody else. So when you're around the water cooler and the gossip begins about what she's wearing or who she's dating or what she said 
rather than cursing, rather than joining in, blessing, giving honor to them, giving a blessing from your heart and also looking to give a blessing from God. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know, it's one thing to say a good word to them from God. It's another thing to speak a good word to God for them. See, the danger of praying is you are communicating, imploring to the God of the universe who can do anything. And so now, God forbid, whatever you pray might come to pass. It's much better just to say hi. But to bring them before the Lord. To speak a good word. It's hard to petition God for the one that you hate. To say, God, hear my voice as I lift up this person. Bless his situation, her situation. I pray for his or her spiritual growth. I pray that they might flourish, that they might do good, they might turn from their ways, whatever it is that you're praying for. It's hard to pray for someone else. And finally, give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. This deals with really two things. The first is extortion. Okay? People extorting you, taking advantage of you, putting you in a position where you have to give resources in order to do good. But it's more than simply extortion. It's also for those who beg from you. Now it's talking about those who are truly needy. For those who need, for those who are destitute, to those who are in trouble, not to look away from them. Not to walk away. But we must also look at other scripture that says not to give foolishly. Not to throw pearls before swine, so to speak. To be wise in the way that we do this. It doesn't say to give to those who beg who are lazy. Thessalonians 3.10, so 2 Thessalonians, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. See, we don't give when it harms more than it blesses. But rather, we respond creatively, proactively. What does this mean about the person who's on the corner when I come by and I see them with their sign as they pull on my heartstrings? Should I give? Should I not give? I've asked my friend Dallas Stamper with Pin Ministries about this. And he says, Carlos, don't give them money. Give it to me. Almost without exception, they are professional takers of what they do. Making fifty to $60,000 a year. Like, you're kidding me. Dallas knows. If we give, give love, give food. You know, McDonald's gift card, $5. You can go buy one. You can have several in your wallet. You can give. You can love. You can direct them to Christ. But don't hurt them more than blessing them. We look to give. Not to react, not to receive, but to respond proactively to those who are hurting and desperate. Giving is open-ended. Loving that does is open-ended. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. See, I don't know what it is that you're supposed to do. 
It's like God plants the seed in our hearts. Doesn't mean what I particularly love. I should give them Chinese food because I love Chinese food. Or I love to be left alone. Sure, I should leave them alone. No, it means the desire of my heart. The principles behind wanting to be satisfied. Giving that to others. You know, this word love, some of you are familiar with it, is the word agape. It's not the word philio, which in Greek is more of a friendship love. Or eros, the love between a man and a woman. Or even stoach, which is the, a word between the man, uh, a person, a family member. But agape. See, philos, friendship love, has an object. But agape has no object. Philos is a feeling. But agape is of the will. Philos is of affection. And yet agape can be carried out with no affect. Agape is love without variables. Philos is human love, but agape is divine love. And that is why in 1 Corinthians 10.13, the Apostle Paul says that agape is patient, and agape is kind, and agape keeps no record of wrongs. This is more than simply about liking, my friends. In fact, it may have nothing to do with liking. It has everything to do with loving. It was C.S. Lewis that said the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor or your enemy. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you find yourself disliking them more. But if you do him a good turn, you find yourself disliking him less. True agape their love. It's based on his love. It's a higher love. It's a love that does. Some of you know the story of Jim Caviezel, the person that played Jesus in that blockbuster hit The Passion of the Christ. Jim is a devout Catholic and strongly speaks uh, in favor of pro-life is against abortion. And well, a friend came to him and challenged him and said, you're pro-life. Tell you what, if you really believe in what you speak, adopt a child. And not any child. He's got to have a serious deficiency. And Caviezel was completely terrified at the possibility of adopting a child with a disability. But deep within his soul, he knew God wanted him to do it. And so, with much prayer, they found Bo. Bo was abandoned on a train in China soon after he was born. He was raised in an orphanage until he was five. And a large visible brain tumor threatened his young life and took away any real hope of love or family. But when Caviezel first met Bo in that orphanage, he knew that adopting Bo would mean a life of doctors and surgeries and worry and heartbreak. But Caviezel said, I saw his eyes. And this sounds like such sentimental hogwash, but I'm telling you the truth. In my heart, I heard this boy calling to me saying, will you love me? Later, Caviezel and his wife Carrie decided to adopt another child, a girl who had a newborn with no deficiencies. But while they were there, they met a five-year-old girl also with a brain tumor. The couple stated that they knew the healthy baby would find a good home. However, it was likely that the sick girl would not. 
And so they decided to adopt the five-year-old and have been blessed ever since. Love does, my brothers and sisters. It's easy to react. It's harder to receive. But it's well nigh impossible to respond. But every good and gift, perfect gift, is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. This agape love is from God. You don't have the power. But He does. Love does and Jesus did. Your love does. And so when you see your enemy, what will you do? It was Mother Teresa who said, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. So step one, we must pray for them. Expand my vision for who they are, God. I cannot see them in the right way, but you can. I don't want to, but you want to. And you're in me and I'm in him. I won't, but you will. And you are in me and I and in you. Do good. Not all of us can do great things, said Mother Teresa, but we can do small things with great love. So it's as simple as walking across to the other cubicle and taking some food. It's as simple as walking down the street to that woman and bringing flowers or just asking how she's doing. It's writing a note of kindness, short and easy to speak, but those that can cause echoes that are truly timeless. It's a smile. It's not a scowl. God will give you the opportunity to do. And it's only by the extraordinary grace of God that you will. This brings me to my final point. It's going to cost you. We might as well say it. This is not all pie in the sky. Love is going to cost you. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what is that? See, how can we do good? How can we do love when there's always strings attached? I can love you if you're going to love me, right? It's a reciprocating relationship. But to do good to someone where you might not get anything back. Indeed, you might get cursing and bitterness. It's like an army laying down its sword. Pulling down its, its uh, defenses. Saying, my heart is open to you. Take a swing if you like. But you see, if it's not really love, it's not love if it doesn't cost anything. Now you may say, Carlos, you don't understand. I have a limited amount of capital to work with. I'm going to give love here. I'm going to give love there. I have enough people to love, but to give love to an enemy is to throw it away. This is a lie. Because when we have the love of Christ, we belong to a bank that will not break. I remember as each one of our children came along, there was always a little bit of, uh, what's the word, worrying on their face, preoccupation. And as we got down to it with each child, it was simply this. When they come along, and you're going to love them, is there going to be enough love for me? And what we always told them, was we don't understand fully how it works, but it's miraculous because God puts enough, heart in, enough love in me to love you fully and to love them fully as well.
Does that also work for our enemies? Yes. But you see, you have to spend in order to receive. Because if you do, expecting nothing in return, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. We don't need the riches that come from man. But God says that I will give you an inheritance, riches that will last forever. And your title will be obvious to all, for you will love and live like me, a son of the Most High. Christ's love is inexhaustible. And so the cost is to give away yourself, fully trusting that God will fill you up with His extraordinary love. My friends, you can only spend what you have. And none of us have enough. But faith is spending in belief that God can give more than enough for me to love and to me to be re-loved. Not to react, but to respond in grace to their curses and their hatred. Church, we need to do this with one another. We're blessed with a church that does love one another. I'm so happy that I don't see a whole lot of the sort of bitterness and conflict I've seen that tear apart churches. But let us be honest. Is there not anger at times or frustration with someone in the church? That you feel that they've wronged you perhaps? Love does. Forgive Go and do something for them. Pray for them and you will discover that your heart will be filled. The enemy outside, maybe even this week, take a step. You cannot know the extraordinary love of God until you practice extraordinary love. Love sees. Love does. Love costs. But extraordinary love can only come from extraordinary grace. So let the way we love each other and our enemies show that our love, our supernatural love, is from God. Let's pray. Lord, when I see my enemy, I see myself. And maybe that's why I turn away. For Lord, was I not once your enemy? Was I not once an object of wrath? Do I only stand, not stand with anything, no clothes, no robes of righteousness, but filthy clothes of sin? And yet you were gracious and loving. You did not see me as I was. You saw me as I was meant to be. And so love, give us eyes to see what people could be. Let our love so transform them that it would break down barriers between us. It would break down barriers between them and God. And Lord, let this be the mark of this church, that our extraordinary love would reveal an extraordinary God. We pray all of these things in Christ's name.